This morning, I want us to look at the second half of a sermon series, a short series of two sermons on marriage. Uh, we typically preach through books of the Bible. We finished uh, the book of Isaiah, and uh, we are taking a, a, a short break to talk about two topics. Last week and today, we're talking about marriage. Next week and the following, we're going to talk about money. Two areas that seem to give all of us trouble at some point in our lives. And we need to be reminded of what Scripture uh, speaks about these two topics. Some of you might say, I have no wife and I have no money. Therefore, is this sermon for me? Friends, a time will come when you will have a wife and you might have money. And you need to think now how you're going to be approaching that season of life. So even singles, uh, I think, can benefit tremendously uh, from hearing these two sermons. Even students uh, will benefit tremendously from hearing these two uh, sermons or these four sermons that are coming up. Also, as a way of encouraging all of us how to pray for the families of our congregation. So even if you're not married, even if you're a widow, I pray that the Lord would use these sermons to encourage you to stir you up to know how to pray for those uh, in our congregation who are married. Some people, especially men, might think about love similarly to chasing after something they enjoy. They enjoy the thrill of chasing after love. They know very well what to do in chasing for love. But once they catch it, they don't know what to do with love in the long run. I love how Mike Mason, in his book, The Mystery of Marriage, said it's so beautiful, and I think it's right. Marriage faces us squarely with a problem of what to do with love once we have finally caught it. He goes on to say, What was most glamorous and exciting seems to insist now on being the most ordinary thing in the world. What do you do with marriage? What do you do with love once you catch it? This is a challenge that many marriages face today. Our society tells you that you don't need to get married to enjoy all the benefits of marriage. And that is against what the Bible says. The life that a husband and a wife are to enjoy together should only be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. Our society also tells us that the happiest years of marriage are the first years. And then the happiness eventually starts to wear off. Here's how an article in a, in a website uh, on psychology today, here's how an article started. In fairy tales, marriages last happily ever after. Science, listen to that. Science, however, tells us that wedded bliss has but a limited shelf, a shelf life. In 2003, American and European researchers tracked 1,761 people who got married and stayed married over the course of 15 years. The findings, confirmed by recent research, again, this is science, uh, were clear. Newlyweds enjoy a big happiness boost that lasts, on average, just two years. Then the special joy wears off. And they're back where they started, 
at least in terms of happiness. End of quote. This is how society, friends, describes marriage. That its biggest happiness is at the beginning, and then it goes down the hill. Friends, Scripture has a very different solution and perspective on how we ought to view marriage. In Scripture, love in marriage ought to increase as couples age in marriage. But sadly, sadly, even many couples uh, that are Christians, even for many couples that are Christians, this is not the reality. Even among Christians, as married life settles in, we somehow begin to experience the surprising turn that the love we once were thrilled about becomes so ordinary that in some situations it becomes even boring or worse. Love itself becomes annoying. What's this biblical framework that, that the Bible has for how we should view marriage, that, that marriage ought to actually increase, not go down the hill after we get married? What is this biblical framework? And the answer is learning to live as one. Learning to live as one. Therefore, um, this message this morning is entitled Living as One. This kind of living, friends, this kind of living as one takes work. It takes intentionality. It doesn't just happen automatically. And friends, the Bible says... It takes the Spirit of God inside of us to help us live this way. This morning, I will invite you to open God's Word to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be reading from verse 15 all the way to verse 33. The same passage we read last week. This is part two of uh, the sermon that we began uh, last week. This uh, passage may be found on your pre-Bibles on page number 978. 978. Here's God's word. First, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it is referring to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts. Father, we are privileged to hear from you and to understand the mystery that you have set before us before the world began. The mystery that you have set as the foundation of, of marriage itself. The mystery between Christ and the church. Help us, Lord, to understand that mystery so that we may understand what it means to live in our marriages for the glory of Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today's sermon is the second message um, on this passage. Last week, we looked at two realities about marriage. The first reality is that we looked at the glory of marriage. And the second is the challenge of marriage. Our human-centered thinking leads us to misunderstand both of these realities. Our human-centered thinking uh, makes us think that the glory of marriage is our human satisfaction. We think that the glory of marriage is our own uh, human craving being satisfied. When we experience a challenge in marriage, in our human-centeredness, we think that the challenge of marriage is the other person. And last week, we saw how both of these perspectives are challenged, are redefined by the biblical view of marriage. The Bible redefines both the glory and the challenge of marriage. The glory of marriage is that it points to the union between Christ and the church. The glory of marriage is not our self-fulfillment, but the reflection of the gospel. And the glory of the gospel is not merely that it saves us from hell, but that it unites us to Christ. The glory of marriage among Christians ought to point to the union between Christ and the church. Likewise, the challenge of marriage is deeper than we think. The challenge of marriage is not your spouse, but your own sinfulness, your own self-centeredness, and this is seated deeply in our nature. That's why the challenge of marriage is deeper than we think. It's deeper in our own hearts. Marriage is not just about gratifying your desires, but about giving yourself up in service for the other. So the command to submit as the church submits to Christ, and the command to love as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, are both commands that call for our self-will to be surrendered. The surrender of the self from the throne of our lives is most practically called for in marriage. And that is why marriage may seem at times to be challenging and even annoying. Friends, it doesn't have to remain annoying. It always will remain challenging, I have to say that. But it doesn't have to remain annoying if we embrace the biblical framework, the biblical picture 
um, that the the Bible teaches us to have about marriage. And today we want to look at this, the positive side, the positive biblical framework that the Bible presents for us as we come to think of marriage. What is the positive framework of marriage? It is the union between Christ and the church. And when we understand the relationship between Christ and the church, it is then and only then that we have the right category to know how to cultivate love in marriage so that love lasts, so that love actually increases, so that in married life, the the love of marriage is not going down the hill or down the drain, but it actually goes up and increases and becomes more, more beautiful as time passes. Now, if you're not a Christian, this biblical recipe for married love will not work for you because you first have to experience that power of Christ's love in you to free you from yourself, to free you from ultimately living to satisfy yourself, to free you from ruling yourself and to give yourself fully to your Creator and to live your life for Him and with Him at the center Only when you are freed up from the bondage to yourself are you actually able to live a life of marriage that is free to live for someone else other than yourself. Friends, if you have not embraced the Christian message, which we call the gospel, I hope that this message about marriage would actually lead you to consider the profound truths about God and about His people. You see, God created humanity in His image and likeness. And one of the characteristics of having the image and likeness of God inside of us is that God made us to have dominion over the creation that God created. But our corruption came when we took that command to have dominion over creation and we exercised that responsibility over our own selves by dethroning God and taking reins and having dominion even over ourselves apart from God. And because we have taken the command to have dominion over creation under God, we have turned that to have dominion over creation over God, apart from God. We rightly deserve God's judgment and God's punishment, God's eternal punishment. But in His mercy and kindness, God provided a rescuer to save his people from their hell-bound race. God sent his only son, Jesus, to give his life, to die on a cross, and to trust his entire being to, to God by, by paying the penalty for the, for the sins of his people so that anyone who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ would be freed from the bondage to rule themselves would be freed from the bondage to live for themselves, would be freed from the bondage to live in rebellion against the Creator. And all those who would would trust in Christ for their salvation would be freed to live now, again, under God, reigning over creation, but reigning with God at the center. Oh, friends, if you have not experienced the freedom that the gospel brings to free you from your own rebellion and from your own dominion of self, I pray that you would 
seek one of us out after the service or talk to one of the members here. Talk to someone who has invited you to church. But without this freedom that the gospel brings to our hearts to break the power of living for ourselves, we cannot experience and live out the love that God commands us to have in marriage for one another. Living the biblical teaching on marriage that this passage gives us is impossible without first experiencing God's salvation in our hearts and experiencing and receiving the Spirit of God inside of us. But it is also true that many Christians have experienced the power of Christ to free them from the tyranny of sin, and yet when it comes to married life, they're not able to connect the dots. It is possible for Christians to live and experience God's freedom of salvation, to be freed from the reign of of sin and from the dominion of sin, and yet at the same time when it comes to their marriage lives, they are living their married lives with the same old recipe of their sinful, self-centered thinking. This means that just because someone is a Christian is no guarantee that they automatically know how to apply the gospel to their married lives. Not at all. That's why even Christian couples experience a deep and painful and ugly effects of sin in their marriages. That's why husbands and wives would do very well if they devote themselves to grow in understanding how the gospel ought to be applied to their lives as husbands and wives so that they may grow in applying, in connecting the dots of the gospel to their lives. And I would love to talk to our couples of what that means even beyond uh, this service. So if you're interested, we'd love to talk to you afterwards. But this morning, we want to look at two points. How do we connect the, the dots of the gospel to our married lives? Two points. Realize the oneness of marriage. Realize the oneness of marriage. Second, live out the oneness of marriage. Live out the oneness of marriage. Let's look at each of these points and see how the, this passage unfolds them for us and why they are critical for understanding how to connect the dots of what we know about God's salvation, about the gospel for our spiritual lives, and how to connect the dots of that for our married lives. Realize the oneness of marriage. In verse 25, Paul's command, uh, Paul commanded husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Now we get that. We understand that that's the gospel. Christ loved the church. He gave himself for the church. And husbands are called to love their wives in this kind of sacrificial giving. And we looked last week, uh, particularly at this command in verse 25. But in verse 28, there is a development. There is a change. In verse 28, the, the command given to husbands is actually looking different than the command in verse 25. In verse 28, Paul says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now, what does this mean? And, and just so you know that this is, this is the ultimate application of the entire passage, this very command is repeated again in verse uh, 33, where the, where the Apostle Paul ends this passage and says, However, let each one of you love his wives as himself. What does this mean? Is Paul changing the imagery from Christ and the church to now husbands and their own bodies, as if these are two different comparisons? 
You know, the, like saying the, the, the imagery of Christ loving the church is the ultimate. But if you can't love this way, this high way, this extreme high standard, then at least love your wives as you would want to be loved yourself. Is this what Paul is talking about? Not at all. Some people might be interpreted to take the command in verse 28 and think that we're supposed to love our wives as our own uh, bodies, as if it's a command to love our wives as we would like to be loved or as we love ourselves, like a a self-centered kind of love. But this is not what this is talking about. The command is not telling husbands to love their wives as they love their own bodies. After all, some men do not take care in a good way for their bodies. And if their own love for their bodies were the standard of how they ought to love their wives, the wife would be in deep trouble. That's why some men need to need the help of their wives to take better care, to learn to be encouraged how to care better for themselves. This command to love our wives as our own bodies is not a command to love our wives as we would want to be loved or as we love our bodies. Something more profound is happening here. And I love how Lloyd-Jones unpacks this command. I was so helped by, by his explanation on this. He says, husbands must realize that his wife or their wives uh, are a part of themselves. The husband will not feel this instinctively. He has to be taught this. And the Bible in all its parts teaches it. In other words, the husband must understand that, that he and his wife are not two. They are one. The challenge, dear friends, we experience in marriage is that we don't know how to cultivate this new oneness. It's a new reality. It gives us a new identity that is formed of two people who are now no longer supposed to think and act as if they're two people, but as if they're one. This oneness of marriage requires that we begin thinking differently about ourselves. Before marriage, each partner was making decisions for himself and only in light of himself. And when we get married, we think that it's that all is needed is for two people to learn how to live with each other. But that is not what the Bible says. After we are married, the Bible calls us not to learn how to live with each other, but how to view the other as part of ourselves. That's the challenge. In marriage, two individuals are being made one. And notice, what is Paul's foundation to talk about this oneness? Why is Paul thinking and saying this oneness idea so much? There's three arguments. There's three reasons. Uh, Two of them are in our passage, and one of them is elsewhere in the Bible. Why this oneness is a big deal. Understanding oneness is a big deal. How does Paul get to talk about the oneness in this passage between a husband and a wife? Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. What is Paul referring to when he says, in the same way? Well, he's referring to the previous few verses prior to verse 28. In verse 25 and 27, Paul gave the example of Christ who loved the church by giving himself up for the church. But a key description about the church in this passage 
is that the church is not just the body, I mean, it's not just the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. In this text, Christ considers the church not to be something other than himself, but to be himself, to be his body. Christ considers the people whom he has redeemed to be a part of himself. And after Christ redeemed his people through his death, Christ continues to care for them, to nourish them, to cherish the church. Christ continues to cleanse the church with a word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that the church might be holy and without blemish. In other words, Christ is not finished with his people after redeeming them. It's like saying to husbands, Husbands, you are not done with loving your wives after you marry them. Don't feel like once you caught love, the game is over. Now you just ride on the wave of marriage. No, just as Christ was devoted to the church and is devoted to the church to continue to sanctify the church, to nourish the church, to, to, to help the church grow in in, in being without a spot and wrinkled. So the same way, husbands are to give themselves to care, to invest, to nourish the body, their wives. But what's the application for the husband? Is it that the husband need to sanctify their wives and make sure that their wives are without spot or wrinkle? No, not at all. Husbands, don't do that because that will cause a lot of problems in your marriage. If you point out all the wrinkles that your wife has, and there will be more and more as she ages, you will not be going in a good direction. There's other ways. The application of this passage that, this, that Paul is bringing out is not to try to deal with your wife um, in, in pointing out all the blemishes and try to make her or force her to get rid of them. No, the application for the husbands is verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. If we look at the example of Jesus giving himself up for the church, the one clear and explicit application we must take as husbands is, husbands, treat your wives as your bodies. They are now your bodies. The two spouses are no longer separate. True, the two spouses are no, not identical. Each continue to maintain their personality. Each continue to maintain certain desires, certain, certain characteristics. But once they are married, they are no longer separate units, but one body. Husbands and wives, this means that we should not think that the expression of one flesh refers only to the physical union. But instead, it refers to how husbands and wives ought to view each other as part of one body. Again, I love the, some of the applications that Lloyd-Jones gave. He said the whole of the husband's thinking must include his wife also. The whole of, one's, of the husband's thinking must include his wife also. He must never think of himself in isolation or in detachment. His thinking, therefore, must never be personal in the sense of being individualistic. He is only the half and what he does involves of necessity the other half. The same applies to his desires. He must never have any desires for himself alone. 
He is no longer one man. He is no longer free in that sense. His wife is involved in all his desires. It is his business, therefore, to see that he is always fully alive to these considerations. Husbands, do you treat or think of your spouses in this way? Not only is the oneness of marriage proved by how Christ regards the church as his body, but also there are two other proofs of this oneness. The first is the very creation of the woman from the man. Remember how God created the woman? When God came to create the woman, he didn't just take another pile of dirt like he did when he created Adam. No, God put Adam to sleep and took a rib out of him and formed the woman out of the man. And then after that took place, the very next thing we are told, that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In other words, by the way God created man and woman in the garden was the foundation why in a marriage we don't have two people coming together and remaining as two. We have two people who come together and become one. In marriage, there is first a separation of old commitments so that the two people who get married do not remain at separate units but become one. In other words, no other earthly relationship should intervene between the union between a husband and a wife. May I say this to our couples? Sometimes we have a hard time allowing or, or separating our parents to have input and become a wedge in our marriages. Parents can uh, hold on and become a wedge in the union between a husband and a wife. There's something else that can become a wedge. It's very easily becoming a wedge. Not just parents, but children. Husbands and wives, children can sometimes become the wedge between you and the union that you're supposed to have with your spouse. Moms, it's easier for you to attach yourself to your child, especially in the early days. Whatever would get in between you and your spouse needs to be separated. There needs to be a separation so that nothing gets in between you and your spouse in terms of your affections, in terms of your interests, in terms of your dedication and commitment. Singles and widows, one of the ways you can pray for those who are married in our congregation is that they would prioritize their marriages above all other earthly relationships. Let me speak here also to men who are incredibly devoted to the life of the church. It's possible that in some situations, the very busyness of working for the kingdom of God in the life of the church becomes a wedge between you and your spouse. It is possible in some situations, I have seen it and witnessed it, that some spouses would end up devoting more to the work of the Lord than actually being devoted to their spouses. And their spouses spouses feel it. Friends, whatever it is that that creates a wedge between you and your spouse and this union that, that God created, that God designed for your marriage to experience, put it aside so that you can devote and live out the union that God expressed and designed for you. The third proof of this union, this oneness, is not only that Christ 
and the church are an example of it. It's not only that God created man and the woman and created a woman out of man so that they would be one flesh. It's that actually in the creation of, of, of marriage, God himself is the one who creates the bond. God himself is, is interested in making this bond. The, the, the union between a husband and wife is not merely their own decision, but the work of God himself. Where do we see that? In Malachi chapter 2, the Lord was a witness between you and your wife, the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Did you hear that? Who makes them one? God. What did God use to make them one? Not merely their vows, although the vows is an important part of the covenant, but God used the Spirit. God put His Spirit to create a union between the wife and the husband. And when the Lord does it, the Lord expects that the husband and the wife now start living this union that He created between them. No wonder that being filled with the Spirit of God is required to live this union between a husband and a wife. This means that the oneness that the husband and the wife are to cultivate is not merely a oneness of their own decision. It's a oneness that God created between them through their covenant. Friends, we don't create the oneness of marriage. We're called to live out the oneness of marriage that God creates between us. In other words, live out what you already are by God's work inside of you. God made a husband and a wife to be one. Therefore, husbands, treat your wives as one, as your body. We have three reasons here why the husbands and wives should view themselves as one. This means, dear friends, when we act in a way contrary to being one, we don't just ignore a high ideal of marriage. We actually act against the God who created the bound, the bound, the oneness. When we act by ignoring the oneness, we don't just neglect our wives. We neglect the God who created that oneness. When we fail to live as one body with our spouse, it's not limited only to physical experience. It is a spiritual reality. We are acting against what God intended for us to experience in marriage. So husbands and wives, realize the new oneness of marriage. But realizing the new oneness of marriage is just the first step. It's not the last step. The big part is, all right, I understand we're supposed to think as one. We're supposed to consider our identity now as married couple as one. Just because you realize the oneness doesn't mean that you know how to live it out. I see some heads nodding, particularly wives' heads. There is a reason why in this passage most of our attention, most of Paul's attention is given to instruct not the wives how to submit, but the husbands how to love. This passage, dear friends, is indicting first and foremost to the husbands because in some sense, they have the primary responsibility to ensure that this is happening in the home. 
not the only responsibility, but the primary responsibility. So we want to look this morning for how do you live out the oneness. We looked at the realize that the you need the oneness that God creates. But let's consider the, the living out the oneness for the husband, and then we'll look at the wife. For the husband, look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Husbands, hear that out. When you love your wife well, you love yourself well. Because now your wife is part of yourself. Husbands, ask your wife this week to tell you what are the things that you do that show her that you consider her to be a part of you. Don't do that now. Don't do that in the service. Don't nudge your husband or your wife. And don't take notes so you can review them for your spouse. Take notes so you can read them for yourself first and foremost. But husbands, if, sh- if your wife can't say anything to the question, what do you do for her that shows her that you consider her to be a part of yourself? If she can't answer that question, you are in trouble. But you're not hopeless. If she can't answer that question, here's the next thing you could do. Ask her that moving forward, what are the things you can do that would show her, that would convince her that you want to treat her as part of yourself? Men, when you make decisions how to spend your time on your hobbies, on yourself, with your friends, are you checking in with your wife? Before you commit to do something, even for the church, do you check with your wife? I love how Ryan McGill has challenged me in doing this in his own family. Before he would commit to do something for the church as an elder, he would often say, let me first make sure and check with Katie to be sure that it fits with what's going on in her scheduling. Here's someone who does it well. Before making a commitment, he's not going just to ask for permission, but asking to make sure that a decision that he's about to make will not affect the rest of the life of the family in ways that would actually hurt them and that it fits with whatever they're going to do. Friends, do you check in with your spouse in your commitments? When you, make, when you decide for things, do you consider your spouse as well? Or do you just go in and doing your own thing, hoping, one, that she would not find out or hoping that she doesn't care? What is involved in caring well for our wives? Paul says three things. Three things that are involved in caring well for our wives. Verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Did you pick up on the three things that Paul speaks here of how to love our wives as our own bodies? It involves no hatred. Have you ever told your wife that you hate her? Wives, have you ever heard your spouse saying that they hate you? I hope you never have. I've heard situations where that was not the case. Perhaps you've never said it, but what about thinking it? You may have guarded your mouth, but you have not guarded your your mind from thinking that. 
Or what about allowing resentment and bitterness to, to, to fester in your heart towards your spouse so that it kept you away from acting lovingly and openly towards your spouse? Here's where treating your wife as yourself becomes very practical, particularly in diffusing arguments and selfish ambitions. If you consider your spouse as yourself, there's no one to be selfish against. Have you ever gotten into an argument with your spouse or into a fight? If you treat your spouse as someone else other than your body, you certainly have. But if you treated your spouse as your body, have you ever gotten into an argument with your body? Why would you be hurtful to your body, right? But when we fail to consider our wives as part of us, then certainly we have freedom. We have the, the, the reason we are in a position to actually build up an argument. We are in a position to build up competition, a battle proving who's right and who's wrong. If you consider yourself with your, one with your wife, then you will not allow a spirit of competition to be between you and your spouse. You would not allow you to take the posture of, of trying to prove who's right or wrong. Did you ever get into an argument with your hand? Imagine, imagine that your hand is hurting. Imagine that your hand is no longer doing the things you once expected your hand to be able to do. Would you begin giving your hand a lecture? Hand, you know better than that. Why are you now letting me down, hand? Would you ever yell at your hand? Would you ever mistreat your hand? Would you ever ignore your hand? Would you ever accuse your hand? Would you ever become cold towards your hand? Would you ever go to the doctor and ask the doctor to have your hand amputated? You would never do that to your hand, would you? And yet, some of us do at least one of those things towards our spouses regularly, all the time. And when we do that, we do nothing less but treat our, our spouses as something other than our bodies. As if they're not our bodies. Don't treat your body with hatred. Somehow naturally you know how to do that with your own physical body. But when it comes to relationships, we don't know how to do that instinctively with our spouses who are now our bodies. And therefore we need to learn how to do that. The second way is nourish it. Not only do we not hate our body, but we nourish it. This means to provide, to supply, so that the needs of the body are met. Now, for our physical bodies, we know how to give it the food it craves. We know how to give it the food it delights in. We know how to make provisions for, the, for what our bodies need. Husbands, do you know the needs and the desires and the feelings of your wife? The same way you know the feelings and the desires of your own body? Husbands, would you take your wife regularly out on dates for one primary purpose? 
to allow them to speak to you openly about their feelings and about their needs. And when you do that, commit that you will not respond back with defending yourself or with explaining yourself. Go and just listen and ask clarifying questions with no allowing you to respond back to defend or to give an explanation. Just listen to what your body, your wife, feels and needs and what she experiences. With your physical body, you do that all the time. When, when, when your leg or your, your back is hurting, you don't start accusing. You don't start giving explanations. You're starting to listen intently to what's happening. Do the same for your wife. If you're treating your spouse as your body, you must ensure that you know what your wife feels. And you must ensure that your wife knows and is convinced that you understand her needs and difficulties How would you provide for her well if you don't understand what her needs are? Men, don't think that the only provision that you are to give to your wife is physical provisions. Sometimes men feel that the only provision that matters is physical provision. And actually that oftentimes can get in the way of providing for their wives emotionally and spiritually. Don't assume that giving yourself to work is enough to provide for your wife. When you listen to your wife, when you choose to be silent and listen well and intently, you're not merely listening to another person. You are listening to your own body because you are to treat your wife as your body. Many marriage difficulties would begin being solved if husbands husbands considered their wives as being their own bodies and listened to their wives and understood their wives as they would listen and understand their own bodies. Thirdly, cherishing. The third way in which we're called to to love our wives as our bodies is to cherish. It's not enough to say, I don't hate my wife. It's not enough to say, I am looking to provide for her. You might be a husband who does both of those very well. And yet, you may not be able to check off the third qualification. Cherishing your wife. Providing for your family is not the same thing as nourishing your wife. And it's not the same thing as cherishing your wife. The word to cherish appears only two times in the entire New Testament. Here, in this passage, and the only other passage it shows up is in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, where Paul says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Cherishing a wife not only comes through cultivating a gentle spirit, and a gentle attitude towards her, but it comes with a desire not to take your wife for granted. Husbands, the opposite of cherishing your wife is not hatred. The opposite of cherishing your wife is indifference, carelessness, lack of attentiveness to your wife. Develop habits in your marriage that show your wife that you cherish her as yourself, that you are attentive to her, that her well-being is as important to you as your own well-being. Husbands, what are the habits that you have that show your wife that you are prioritizing her above all earthly human relationships? Men, are there any hobbies you cherish, things you love to do, things you look forward to do? 
For some guys, it's the hunting season. For others, it's the cars. For others, it's the watching sports. For some guys, it's all three. Whatever those things are. No, you know how to seek. You know how to cherish something you love. Right? I wonder, has your wife made it on that list of things you cherish? Is she at the bottom of the list? Is she second or third in the list? I want to challenge you. Make her to be the first on the list. Look at the things in your life that you cherish, that you love doing as a man. Some people have this phrase I only learned in Texas, you know, a man's cave. You know, you go somewhere, you do something that you just love enjoying apart from your wife or your family or whatever. Friends, what is it that keeps you from cherishing your wife the most? Whatever that is, ask the Lord to forgive you. Repent of that. And ask the Lord to teach you. To teach you. Because it doesn't come instinctively to teach you how to cherish your wife. Oh, friends, do you keep, husbands, do you keep your wives as simply a roommate in your house? Do you treat your house, your wife as a housekeeper or merely as a mother of your children? Husbands, ask your wives to share how would, they, how would your wives grade you on a level from 1 to 10 on the level of how well you cherish her. Husbands, don't be surprised if the grade your wife gives you is different than the grade you would give yourself. If oftentimes happens that there's a mismatch, husbands may think they're doing well at cherishing their wives. And if only the wives were to be asked to compare, there would be such a big mismatch that the, that the husbands would be shocked. The last thing I would say on this little application is the grade that counts is not the grade you give yourself, but the grade your spouse gives you. They are the ones who can tell you more adequately what is the level of your cherishing of them. But notice that the two commands of nourishing and cherishing, the ultimate example is not how we cherish or nourish ourselves, but how Christ nourishes and cherishes his body. Husbands, would you, how would you feel if Christ nourished and cherished you the exact same way as you nourish and cherish your wife? How nourished would you feel? How cherished would you feel? Would you be satisfied if Christ treated you the way you treat your wife? All this is for the husbands and now for the wives. The oneness is translated in the form of expressing respect for the husband. Why this form? Because if you're one with your spouse, you treat the other person with dignity, with the same care and admiration that you would want for yourself. The Greek word for respect here is the Greek word for fear. Now, the word for fear has several meanings. One of the meanings is to be afraid. But this is not the meaning of this passage or in this passage. For throughout this text, husbands and wives are challenged to treat one another as if they're one body. And there's no need to to sort of be afraid of your own body. Instead, there's another meaning for the word fear, and that means to have a profound measure of respect for someone. And that's the meaning here. If there's any room for fear, it is the following. Having such a respect for someone 
that you fear offending them. Friends, we do that with our bodies all the time. If you knew that something would really hurt your body, you most likely would not do it. Only reckless people would do things like that. Respect means treating the other person in such a way that you do not want to offend the other person. So even when you're having to bring out a difference, you want to do it in such a way that the other person will not be offended or feel attacked and that he, that, that he, or he will hear your difference well. It may be painful to hear something, but you can speak about painful things in a very careless way, accusing the other person, or you can speak about painful things in a way that will feel less painful. That means, dear friends, dear wives, that sometimes when you want to bring something to your spouse, you want to first gauge your heart and see whether or not you are ready to say something in a way that will not cause pain to the other person. You may not be ready to say something, and you should not say something the moment you feel like you want to say it because your heart is not ready to say it in an inoffensive way. Respecting your husbands means looking at them and making sure that you something that would not offend them. One of the things that God has done in my own marriage um, was to surprise me early in, in the years of our marriage how quickly Anka would, if, if we had a, an issue or something that was more heated or, or she had to express a particular frustration or difference and it came out in a, perhaps in a, with a tone of voice that was more raised than usual, Anka was very quick to immediately apologize for the way she had expressed that thought. And I remember being surprised. I didn't think of it much. But consistently she would show that she cared for the way her words came out of her and would consistently ask for apology and forgiveness for saying something in a wrong tone. It humbled me to recognize that this woman has such a deep respect that she does not want to offend me even when she brings out things that I need to correct. Friends, living as one, with one another means that we treat our bodies as ourselves, as part of us. And just as we would not act harshly treating our own body parts in an offensive way, we would not want to do that with our spouses. Wives, do your husband see in you a desire not to offend them? I love how this passage brings together for both the couple, for the, for the wife and the husband, not only the, the reasons for why we should live as one, but the explanation of what that means. We have considered two points. Realize the oneness of marriage. Second, live out the new oneness of marriage. Friends, in marriage, a union between Christ and the church is not only a union that we are called to reflect, but a union to which we must turn to so that we can learn how to love our wives well. Learn from Christ and from his relationship to the church. And this will help us love our wives well. Father, we confess that instinctively in our own nature, we do not know how to love one another as Christ loved the church. We pray that you would assist us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your Spirit so that we may love one another as you have loved us in Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray.